Hello, I'm William Henry, and I have with me Michael and Sylvia Penny. In this series of podcasts, we're planning to explore the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. This is part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, and it's a book you don't often hear sermons on. Do you agree with that, Mike? Yeah, I I think you're right there, Will. Um, But actually, there are a number of well-known expressions that uh, come from the book of Ecclesiastes, you know? Like what? Well, that's something. <laughs> well, how about vanity of vanities? All is vanity. Or eat, drink, and be merry. Or uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, I hadn't, hadn't realised that all of these were in Ecclesiastes, but I do think it's often seen as a hard book to understand in a Christian context, mainly because it seems to be so full of pessimism and despair. Now, I know that you two have done quite a bit of work on Ecclesiastes, doing conferences in Reading and Nottingham. So, Sylvia, is Ecclesiastes as negative and depressing as people say? Well, no, I don't think that's a fair comment. I think the writer's main concern is wisdom and how we can live wisely in an uncertain world where history keeps repeating itself and where there's always a threat of death present. Yes, it's the inevitability of death and the fact that we don't know when it's going to hit us that makes it hard to give meaning to our earthly life. In fact, it's been suggested that the word meaningless or vanity is the key to the whole book. Well, that word does appear about 35 times in Ecclesiastes. And the first chapter opens with the famous statement, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. That's how the English Standard Version translates it. Or um, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless, as it says in the New International Version. So if that word vanity or meaninglessness is such a prominent one in the book, what does it actually mean, Mike? Well, Will, uh, the word in the original Hebrew text is hevel, H-E-V-E-L, and its primary meaning is fleeting, temporary or transient, which is true about Things because in this life, nothing lasts forever. So the opening words could be paraphrased, transient, temporary. Everything is passing. Yes, and this word can also take the meaning of futile, which focuses on the fact that the earth was subject to the curse or the fall in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world and had a hugely damaging effect on the human experience in the world ever since. So as a result, everything under the sun, as Ecclesiastes puts it, is transient and temporary and imperfect. Yeah, this idea of man under the sun is quite important, isn't it? We get this phrase about 30 times in Ecclesiastes, and that's just 12 chapters. So what do you think he's trying to convey with these words, Sylvia? Well, I think he's observing the world and life from man's point of view. It's man alone trying to find the meaning on the treadmill of a world where there's uncertainty at every turn. And one writer suggests that the book is actually a critique of secularism and of secularised religion. Yeah, that's interesting. His approach sounds quite similar to that of the existentialist writers of the last century. You know, the French people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, who tried to find significance in a meaningless world. Yeah, but Ecclesiastes doesn't come at it from an atheistic standpoint, does it? No, no, far from it. The writer is very aware of God and refers to him about 40 times. 
he really brings that out in his conclusions in chapter 12. However, there are hints of it throughout the book. And Sylvia said earlier, his main watchword is wisdom. And as we know from Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which was the subject of the second podcast we did in the series, um, What is Wisdom? Yes, Ecclesiastes keeps bringing us back to wisdom, and there can be no true wisdom that doesn't start with God. But how does the writer of Ecclesiastes refer to God? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Although in the book he refers to God nearly 40 times, he always uses the name Elohim for God, which emphasises the creator God, rather than the name Jehovah, which speaks of God living in covenant relationship with Israel. Yeah, it's been suggested that Ecclesiastes sees God as creator, as sovereign, and also, I think, as the personification of wisdom. Yeah, actually, some think that the writer of Ecclesiastes sees God as quite severe, not standing for any nonsense. For example, Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. To the writer, it is important that the man, the creature, knows his place. Hey, that, that sounds like what God said to Job in chapters 38 to 41 at the end of the book when he called Job to account. Exactly. And Job is another example of, wis- of another of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. The writer of Ecclesiastes seems to have a similar view of God. OK, so who was the writer of Ecclesiastes? Well, if if we take it at face value, the first verse of Ecclesiastes begins with the words of the teacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. And verse 12 of the first chapter says, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Yes, and Solomon was the only person who ever fitted that description. All other descendants of David who became kings in Jerusalem were described as kings of Judah, not kings of Israel. Because after Solomon's time, there was a civil war and the kingdom was split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And David's descendants only ever ruled over the kingdom of Judah. Yeah, and and Solomon was supposed to be one of the wisest people who ever lived, wasn't he? Oh, possibly so. He was certainly very wise. In 1 Kings 3.12, God said to Solomon, I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And as if to back that up, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 16 says, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Any other indications that Solomon was the writer? Yeah, I think so. Um, In Ecclesiastes 12.9, it says, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. Yeah, well, I suppose that also points to Solomon, doesn't it? Because the vast majority of the book of Proverbs in the scripture was written by him. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, they were. And the whole of Ecclesiastes is written from the point of view of someone who was wealthy enough to have to have experienced every luxury and every possible lifestyle available at that time. And Solomon was 
extremely wealthy. That's true, but also it was written by someone who was wise and knowledgeable enough to have considered every philosophy and every way of thinking about life and its meaning. And also, crucially, it was someone who actually had the time to do all of this. It seems unlikely that anyone else other than Solomon would have or could have written Ecclesiastes at that particular time. Yeah, I suppose that back then to have had that sort of wealth and the time available to enjoy it was quite unusual. People didn't have the amount of leisure time that a lot of us enjoy nowadays. You know, the 40 years of Solomon's reign was a very unusual period in the entire history of the people of Israel. It was a golden period during which they had peace and tranquility. All the surrounding nations were in awe of Solomon and his kingdom. And we are told that the whole world brought tribute to Solomon. Yeah, it wasn't just the surrounding nations, was it? Didn't the Queen of Sheba come to hear for herself the wisdom and the knowledge that Solomon had and also to witness his huge wealth just for herself? Yeah, yeah, she did. And when she met Solomon, 1 Kings 10 verses 6 and 7 Record record what she said to him. The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. But some scholars don't think that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, do they, Sylvia? That's right. Some theologians have suggested that the Hebrew style and vocabulary is much later than those of Solomon's time, and also note that the text includes a few words in Aramaic, which was the common language of the captivity in Babylon, which happened many centuries after Solomon's time. Yeah, but in response to that, other scholars have pointed out that our knowledge of ancient styles and vocabulary actually depend on the writ literature that has survived from that time. And there's not much from Solomon's era, you know. Therefore, Ecclesiastes may simply prove that such a style and vocabulary were used far earlier than these people suggest. And with regard to the Aramaic words that are used, the fact <clears throat> is that Aramaic had a very long history that Abraham was described as a wandering Aramean, and that's in Deuteronomy 26, verse 5, and that it was also used and understood before the Babylonian captivity, according to 2 Kings 18, verse 26. Yeah, but one of the problems with Ecclesiastes, I find anyway, is that it doesn't appear to be laid out terribly systematically. The arguments don't flow smoothly, and it seems to hop about all over the place. And some theologians, I think, have concluded that it's a collection of sayings, you know, like Proverbs, written by a variety of people. Someone I read has even claimed that they found nine different voices in the book. Yes, it's been claimed that it was a common literary device in ancient times to attribute written works to famous people. That would give their writing more weight. The author of the author or authors didn't really claim to be Solomon. They just put their words into Solomon's mouth to give what they said more authority. And also, the fact that the argument of Ecclesiastes doesn't flow smoothly may be because it is a meandering through the general messiness of human experience, and it is a response to that. 
Yeah, well, I can see that. Yeah, I think so too. But also, looking at the overall themes and structure of Ecclesiastes and the way it was written, it is generally thought that he wrote this book near the end of his life as an old man, looking back over everything he had done and everything he had experienced and wondering how worthwhile it had all been. So there are many scholars who believe that only Solomon could have written Ecclesiastes, and so they accept that the author is who he says he is. The idea that Solomon had nothing to do with the book seems very unlikely. Yeah, I think that must be right. The description of the writer's own life and the lessons he drew from it sound like a personal testimony produced by someone who was writing from experience. So given all that, I think we'll take it as read that Solomon wrote the book. Mm-hmm. It's certainly true that Solomon made many mistakes. We're told in 1 Kings 11 verses 2 and 3 that Solomon had listened to his many foreign wives during his life and that they had led him astray. Yeah, I think uh, Solomon's first wife was the daughter of a pharaoh. I think she was the first because we, we read in 1 Kings 3 verse 1, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. But all this... You know, having many wives, especially having many foreign wives, wasn't that against the law of Moses? Yes, definitely. Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 states explicitly that the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And that is exactly what happened to Solomon. Didn't Solomon have something like 700 wives and 300 concubines? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. One's enough for me, I tell you. Never mind. 1 Kings 11.1 tells us King Solomon loved many foreign wives besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. And the list goes on. So the question is, did he turn away from the one true God, Jehovah, the God of the relationship with the nation of Israel? Is that why the name Jehovah isn't mentioned in Ecclesiastes? Yes, it could be. The OBT published a book by Charles Ozan called The Vain and the Same in Ecclesiastes. And in it, he says, It is remarkable that Elohim, God the Creator, occurs 39 times in this book, but Jehovah, the covenant-making God, not at all. This is in sharp contrast with Proverbs, where Elohim occurs only five times and Jehovah about 90. Well, that's quite a difference, isn't it? Does does he give any explanation for this? Yes. He goes on to say, It would seem that Solomon in his old age had lost the intimacy that he once knew with the Lord. He now saw him as the lawgiver and judge, that's Elohim, rather than the intimate companion of his earlier years, and that's Jehovah, a God to be feared and obeyed rather than worshipped and adored. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. It could be that. But but getting back to the book, why why is it called Ecclesiastes? What does that mean? Well, the, the English title of the book, Ecclesiastes, comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that's called the Septuagint. Um, it means preacher and comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which is often translated assembly or congregation in the New Testament. Yes, but the original Hebrew title of the book was Koaleth, which means one who calls or gathers the people. And the OBT has produced a booklet called Koaleth Speaks by Bob Morris, in which he goes through chapters three and four of Ecclesiastes in detail. 
That's well worth reading. Right, so that's why Ecclesiastes begins with the words of the teacher, son of David, in the NIV. Although there, there's also a footnote that says it could be the leader of the assembly. The English Standard Version translation renders it the preacher, as you suggested, Mike. Yeah, yeah. The writer is someone with wisdom and authority whose words are worth listening to because he has really analysed the situation of man under the sun. Okay, and the first thing he has to say is pretty devastating. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's in verse 2 of chapter 1. So why is it meaningless, Mike? Well, if there is only this life, nothing to follow it, then the inevitable fact of our death makes everything we do ultimately transient, futile, and meaningless. So what's the point of it all? Well, that's exactly the question I was asked by an old lady a few years ago. She and her husband had been members of the Humanist Society, and they lived what most people would describe as a good life. But when her husband died... She told me she felt what a waste of time it had been to accumulate a lifetime's wealth of knowledge and experience, only for it to be lost when someone died. If that was true, I had to agree with her. However, when I suggested to her that death may not be the end of everything, she said she only wished that she could believe this was true, and that I was fortunate that I did. Yeah, ultimately, she realised that humanist philosophy does not provide an answer for the meaning of life. If there is no life after death, then much of this life is meaningless. Yeah, but see what Solomon goes on to say after that statement about everything being meaningless. He talks about how everything repeats itself. Listen to this. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So do you think he's right, Sylvia? Yes, I think it is true that everything repeats itself. This is the circle of life outlook that was popularised a few years back in The Lion King. You find meaning for yourself by taking your place in the circle of life, growing up, contributing to society, raising children who will continue the whole process. But you're just a cog in an ever-spinning wheel. That ultimately is personally futile, because what's the point? Yeah, right. And in the next verse, Solomon says, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Okay, so you're soon forgotten about, but we all have an instinctive feeling that we are more than a cog in the wheel. A minute ago, Mike, you said that if there is only this life, then everything is futile. Why do you think belief in life after death brings meaning to this life? That's a pretty fundamental question. I think the fact that Christian believers are promised eternal life with the Lord gives perspective to this life. We know that this life is transient and short, but the Lord is trying to build us up to be the kind of people he wants us to be in eternal life, ready for when we meet him in resurrection. So everything we say and do potentially has an eternal significance. The qualities we have as people and the work that we do, our relationships with family and friends, 
and the way we react to problem situations. These are all important because they can help us become more like Christ. That is God's plan for us. And it will reach a wonderful climax when we meet him in resurrection. If it was all going to end when we die, it would be completely pointless. Yeah, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, I think it is. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Yes, and we also have to remember that we have the Holy Spirit living within us, helping us to develop into people who are worthy of the Lord. And, of course, in Ephesians 1, uh, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is described as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So there's another link between this life and the life to come. Yeah, there is another one, yeah. And the point is this, that if there is no resurrection and no eternal life, then Christianity, like all humanist philosophies, is pointless. But Christianity is not just an ethical system or a philosophy of this life as humanism is. It is the answer to death and what happens afterwards. So Christianity gives meaning and purpose to this life. Okay. Okay, now Solomon turns to explore everything that is done under the heavens using wisdom. Good place to start with wisdom, I would think. But then immediately he concludes that everything that's done is meaningless, just a chasing after the wind. But then he says this, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. It's in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. A heavy burden. What do you think the burden is, Sylvia? Well, chapter 1 isn't the only place we find this word. It also got in chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen the burden God has laid on men. And then he goes on back in chapter one to say, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. So I think the burden is linked with that problem. Yeah, but what is crooked? What is lacking? This burden, this thing that is twisted and crooked, I think refers back to the curse at the beginning of Genesis. It refers, it refers to the fall and to the sin in this world. So the burden that's placed on mankind is having to live in a fallen world where he or she is alienated from other people. And I suppose also alienated from the creation, too, because it was cursed along with Adam and Eve. Yeah, but it's interesting. Solomon doesn't blame God for this situation. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, he says, this only have I found. God made mankind upright. But men have gone in search of many schemes. Solomon understood the truth that God didn't make man sin. Man chose to sin of his own free will. And sadly, so do we. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. But in the second reference to the burden God has laid on us in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, Solomon says this, What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. What do you think he means by that, Sylvia? I think he means that there's an appropriate time for every human activity. Don't forget the first eight verses of chapter three, which are probably the most well-known verses in Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, 
a time to plant and a time to uproot and so on. Oh, yeah. Wasn't there a, a rock group in the 60s? The, the bird, spelt with a Y, who had a big hit with turn, turn, turn. I think it was written by Pete Seeger and based on the words of Ecclesiastes 3. Do you remember it, Will? Yeah, I think my granny used to sing it to me when I was in my cot. Oh, come off it. You're older than that. You must remember it. Yeah, OK, I admit it. But do you think that Solomon is trying to get across something special with that great list of opposite things that there's a right time to do? Living, dying, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing. Well, there is something quite pleasant about it as he talks about the different rhythms and seasons in our lives. But when you think about it, it makes us feel a bit um, uneasy. This constant doing one thing, then it's opposite. It's not much better than the circle of life treadmill that we find in chapter one. What is the point of it all? Yes, but don't forget there's another factor which Solomon brings in in verse 11. He has also set eternity in in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It's the fact that we, unlike the animals, are not created to just live in the moment. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, yeah and here in that verse, we have a glimpse that there is more. All through history and through prehistory too, for that matter, mankind has wanted to see the future and try to see beyond this life. We have a glimpse of eternity and a feeling that we are significant and destined for something much greater. And that explains humanity's search for God. Yet, as Solomon points out here, no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay, so what's the answer? Well, Solomon spells it out here. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. Yeah, yeah. I think recognising these things as gifts from God, that is the key. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And when we recognise that he has placed us here to do good and to find satisfaction in doing good and doing our work because we are doing these things for him, that makes all the difference to how we approach our lives. Yes, I think there's no divide between the sacred and the secular. I think we talked about that in podcast six of our series on what is wisdom. There's no divide between these two. Everything we do, secular or sacred, is for him. And all we receive is from him, our food and the means of life. Yes, many Christians always say grace before meals because it's a good way of acknowledging that we realise and appreciate that we're totally dependent on God for all that we have in this life, food and drink and air. Okay, right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Next time, maybe we'll have a look at other things that Solomon tells us are gifts from God. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this first discussion on Ecclesiastes. Thanks for listening.